the alternative stories and fake realities podcast audio drama poetry fiction You're listening to the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Welcome to the first of two podcasts about the art and technique of storytelling. Our guests in this edition are award-winning novelist and short story writer Zoe Gilbert and actress Tiffany Clare. Zoe Gilbert's debut novel, Folk, was published to widespread acclaim in 2018. It was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and was an Observer Book of the Year. Previously, Zoe had won the 2014 Costa Short Story Award. She's a co-founder of London Lit Lab with Lily Dunn, who we'll be hearing from in the second part of this short series about storytelling. We caught up with Zoe via Zoom a few weeks ago. Extracts from Folk and Zoe's forthcoming novel Mischief Acts are read by Tiffany Clare and Sally Walker-Taylor. I'm Zoe Gilbert. I'm the author of two novels, Folk and Mischief Acts, which comes out next year. Um, in my novels and short stories that I've written around them, I use folk tales, folklore and the fantastic a lot as a source of inspiration, but also for shaping the work itself. Zoe, you've used British folklore extensively as a backdrop to your storytelling, creating your own fantastic worlds in which the stories unfold. When setting stories in a world that you have created and in which pretty much anything can happen, do you need to impose certain rules and limitations on the way in which the stories develop? I think it is important to find the edges of a fantastical world that you're creating that doesn't follow the rules of one that already exists. There's a really useful way of describing this that I found in an essay by Alan Garner, where he talks about the what-if corral, as in a corral that you would maybe keep sheep in, um, that once your what-if corral is in place, then you know what can, can go inside it and what mustn't in the world of the story. And you kind of establish that fairly quickly, but you it's your job to find kind of the edges. Um, and obviously that isn't always straightforward because you don't necessarily know to begin with. I think I've often done this intuitively and not really consciously understood that I was, say, trying to create the world inside folk tales, which is what I decided later I had been up to when I was writing folk. Um, and it's much easier to do with short stories than maybe a novel. But I also think it's it's important to think about both if you're writing a kind of full fat fantasy world where you want it to be different from the usual familiar dragons and swords kind, but also if you're writing something that's using the fantastical, the folkloric elements as kind of metaphors or the only fantastical intrusion. Readers seem to be quite good at accepting story worlds where there's one fantastical intrusion. So if you've got a magic pen they don't also expect you to have a magic lamp and a magic cooker. You know, they, you, as long as you introduce that properly and make it clear really quickly <laughs> at the beginning that everything else is normal, uh, this seems to work really well and attract the reader's attention to this as a potential metaphor or a symbol for something maybe emotional. So, I, as I said, I think it's you have to think about it, but I think it's also good to let yourself be intuitive about it until you understand what the story is that you're writing, rather than pre-setting yourself rules that you then feel you have to follow, which is 
can be deadening, I think. We we mentioned there that you've you've used um a lot of folklore and um folk tales as kind of inspiration and setting for um for your stories. So do you see yourself as part of the folk tradition or are you using these stories as a vehicle for telling your own tales, really? I think the question of whether there's a a folk tradition, maybe the older tales that we might look back to or traditional retellings now that's sort of separate from writers using folk tales and folklore to tell their own stories is, is maybe a bit of a false dichotomy, really, because I think... The way that folk tales have been retold orally or in writing over the centuries has always been with the intention for that for the particular writer of telling a story that they want to tell and that has the message that's important to them. And that message can vary wildly. So I suppose I do see myself in the tradition in that sense. Another way that that maybe I've been a bit more a bit more traditional, which is not to say that I that I haven't also attempted to be contemporary in folk, at least, was that I realized while I was writing that and also reading lots of other people's novels and short stories, that I'd created a fairly traditional folktale world. So it feels like it's in the past, but you don't know quite when, and it feels fairly rural, but you don't know quite where, kind of thing. Whereas um some of my I hope they don't mind being called my contemporaries, but writers like Lucy Wood or Kirsty Logan are very, very good at inserting the folkloric and the fairy tale into contemporary settings. So those kinds of stories that are more like uh, a literary short story that has a folkloric element woven through are definitely functioning differently from a traditional folk tale. So you could make that distinction. But I really think... Folk tales being retold, even in a very recognisable form, can be as radical and subversive and even offensively different as you like. And they can bear almost any meaning being kind of fed into them and popped out the other end. And I see this all the time with the writers who come on my writing courses. I'll give them, say, Bluebeard, which we've been doing on a course recently, which has a kind of indelible central dynamic and they will all make something completely different out of it that has a different meaning for each of them. So it's definitely Bluebeard, but it's entirely new as well. And I think that's why this kind of folktale tradition doesn't die, because you can you can do what Angela Carter said, was it new put new wine in old bottles and watch them explode. And uh, I think folktale retailers have always done that, whether they knew that's what they were doing or not. I, I mean, the, the anecdote I, I always really like is the one about folk songs and 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 when people started travelling to to the Americas, and they took the songs with them, and then when the the song collectors, I guess in the twenties and thirties, started documenting folk tunes with recording equipment, which was suddenly then available on both sides of the Atlantic, the the songs were recognisable, but had gone off in slightly different directions so the words may be different or the tune you know the chorus is slightly different but but they were recognizably the same song and, and had the same origins and I think that's possibly what what you're alluding to there in terms of stories going off in different directions as well which they will I guess when verbally yeah. verbally told. Yeah definitely and that kind of that little recognizable essence that that can appear in a story that has been retold um in a, in a wildly different way from the original, it can still be in there. And that, that some people talk about it 
as intertextuality, or you can think of it as a connection or a relationship between all the different versions of Bluebeard and all the retellings that the, the seeds that are in there, they add, they add some meaning, but they also don't have to be recognisable for the story, hopefully, <laughs> to work on its own terms. But it adds an extra layer of pleasure, uh, especially if the original story and the retelling are in conflict or in tension with each other, I guess. Ephra sighs, a stream of tart bubbles. She has failed again to resist the woods' melodrama. A horned man. She should not be tantalised, but she is. She indulges the image. Dark furred head. Tensile antlers gleaming amidst the night's foliage. A headlong ride, tearing the trees, churning the earth. But she felt no shudders through the ground last night while she lay still, suspended in her stream. Ephra does not sleep exactly, though she dreams. The chestnut dryad tuts, flexing her wrist. With a self-righteous sniff, she climbs up. They're all so very nimble, and settles herself in a crook, there to gaze and drape. A lissom garland for a splendid tree. Ephra prefers the trees for company to their decorative dwellers. It is a kind of uncelebrated joke of the forest that the dryads are so preoccupied with their own chatter, their own sylph-selves, that they have never noticed the talk amongst their hosts. Ephra, earthbound but itinerant, can tap down, tune in. There are roots that share her bed and her banks. She can press a shell ear, rest her head, and hear, then, slow but sure, the sonorous harmonics of the grown trees the ticklish percussion of mycorrhizal static. So much more pleasant than the reedy voices of the dryads. The trees are pragmatic, practical. They know of the night's destruction and a passing succour and nourishment to the victims. They act without fuss. Though all the trees love the dryads, their weird daughters, there is no hope of being heard by them. No point in even shaking their heads and groaning. Instead, they do what counts. Through the underwater route nearest, Ephra understands the extent of the horned man's rampage. Even she winces a little. Saplings trampled, bark slashed, a stand of silver birches hacked at shoulder height. There are dead and dying. In an enchanted forest, Death is met with dignity, if it comes at all. Trees look after their elderly. They know that time bestows wisdom, and centuries especially. There is no wisdom and no dignity in this wanton slaying. What kind of man or beast has done it? Trees are rarely vengeful, but perhaps this will have hurt enough. Ephra can hear in the delphic chords that thrum through the root, notes of pain, a calm ache, almost a soothing sound. It fills her with pity. While they mend as best they can, while they minister to their dear ones, she will find this antler-toting fool. She will warn him off or calm him down. She has never done it, but in extremis, Ephra, has the power to drown. 
So you've used documented folk tales as well as ones which you've kind of imagined and and I, I defy a, a reader to to tell the difference really. So how do you achieve that air of kind of folklore authenticity in the stories that come from your imagination? I think when I first started out trying to write short stories of any kind as an adult, <laughs> I was trying to emulate folk tales or try and work out what made something feel like a folk tale. Uh, little did I know that essays had been written about this and I could have just gone and read them. I was trying to figure out the nuts and bolts. Of, of, so that was more about form. What is the style and structure of a folk tale that makes it feel like a folk tale? So I messed around figuring that out. And I think that has helped for me with feeling that I can take material that I've made up in my head and, and give it structure that will feel hopefully, if not authentic, then kind of recognisably in that folk tradition. When it comes to folklore and making that up, I think it's more tricky, but there's so much of it out there. And again, like with folk tales and folk songs, you get these same little snippets, little ideas, customs, beliefs that are different, like say just within the British Isles, there'll be thousands of versions of the same belief or custom and each will have its own little twist on it. And I think the more you immerse yourself in this stuff, the more you get a sense of the possible. And that may be that what if Corral that Ghana talks about of how, how far could I go with this? And some of it is so hilariously ridiculous and implausible that actually I think you can go quite far. When I was trying to do this for folk, because I'd used the Isle of Man as, as inspiration and some of the Manx folklore and folk tales as well, as well as other folklore. But by that point, I was realising I needed to honour the Isle of Man, even though I wasn't calling the setting in my, of my book the Isle of Man. And so when I began to invent the folklore that I used in the very opening chapter of that book, which invents this kind of gorse mother character, it was nerve-wracking, I have to say, because I was I was worried that that I might be going too far. But but by then I'd kind of absorbed, I hope, some of the the brutality and the romance as well of the Manx landscape that is, you know, I suppose the nearest literary comparison I can think of is a bit a bit like Wuthering Heights or something that it kind of it's, it's full of extremes it's not very kind to you and yet you kind of fall in love with it and so I think those parts of my attitude to the Isle of Man fed into what I thought I could allow myself with invented folklore and later a Manx reader did say to me oh yeah I, I think I remember the Gorse Mother folklore I'm sure I've, I've read that and they couldn't have but that was the the greatest compliment You've referred to place and obviously the very specific place, the, the Isle of Man there. And I, th I think often folk tales are associated with places, aren't they? They develop and probably verbally through word of mouth within a particular area and don't necessarily travel because people didn't travel to tell those stories elsewhere. Yeah. And and I wanted to ask you as a, as a as a writer, is it important to you to have immersed yourself in that place, to know that place well, in order to write confidently about it? I think it's it's definitely useful to get to know a place physically if you're going to write about it and it kind of extends, especially if you're trying to invent some folklore for it, because the, 
the connection between folklore and I suppose some folk tales as well and their locations is is really vital and you know the really obvious contrast is between the kind of folklore and folk tales that you get in wooded valleyed places green hills and and hidden dells and the kind of folklore and folk tales that you get in wide open desolate spaces or on shorelines and on the sea that kind of thing and you know instinctively you can understand why that is it's because the things that you need to consider or fear and things that represent landmarks or obstacles are different in those two different kinds of landscape but that isn't to say that we can't project and I'm all for writers using their imaginations and lots of writers folk tale inclined writers seem to be immediately inspired by Scottish islands in particular and I definitely borrowed some Isle of Skye folklore say for for folk not just Manx folklore and I think it can be actually really useful to project onto a place that you don't know and you're going to create something that might not really be very much like the real place but that's fine as a starting off point and as long as you're not claiming that you know this is the post office in Mull then (laughs) then you'll be fine. (laughs) Well, there's a value also to to you know your imagined version of a place, isn't there? Um, so 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 there's an I, I think there's a, there's an opposite benefit sometimes in visiting a place that you've often thought about and imagined but never actually been to because because that gives you the creative element coming out straight out of your head rather than the factual element evidence of your eyes and ears in that place so yeah exactly and if you're being a bit fantastical or you're you're creating something then you can't be in situ in this place um if you start trying to to feel as though you have to be true to every real realistic detail you're going to be on a research project for five years not writing (laughs) something imaginative so it's a fine balance and I you know I I love falling into research about places rather than making it up. And sometimes I have to, yeah, force myself to stop and think it doesn't, this detail doesn't actually matter. I can make it whatever I like. Mm. Quite hard though. If you're enjoying this edition of Alternative Stories and Fake Realities, please consider subscribing in your favourite podcast app to have new editions delivered to you the moment they are released. You'll also have access to our full archive of audio drama, poetry and fiction podcasts. We always appreciate ratings and reviews, preferably in Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. These help to raise the profile of our podcast, allowing more people to listen and more content to be produced. Um, do Do you also subscribe to the notion that a good story can be taken from its location and transplanted to any any almost any other setting or do you do you do you see that that place and that context as as important to a story i think you can transpose a story or even a bit of folklore to another setting i've played fast loose with the locations of some british folklore in my next book and i guess i did in a way in folk while trying to make it feel authentic but using the excuse of an imaginary place (laughs) but I guess you might also run into some interesting problems like you know the the contrast between foresty folklore and shoreline and sea folklore is so different that you you might find something really interesting happens if you pluck a bit of woodland folklore and stick it in a shoreline environment I mean it could be entertaining and it could be really really confusing but for 
for moving whole stories to new locations. I mean, it's been done with novels as well as stories really successfully lots of times. I guess it's just about sensitivity and also what it is you think you're doing by shifting that story. Uh, because there are very obviously an entire set of stories that very much need to be in a particular location because of the the cultural or historical implications that they have. And I'm not mm. even going to start down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's an interesting one. I think I think you you get into a kind of magical realist sort of world, don't you? I mean, I I was trying to think of a of a shoreline story, and we did th- we did this lovely audio drama called Selkie. Um, mm. And it would be difficult to put a selkie in a forest because how how do you explain um, that? But uh, you know, Garcia Marquez um, put a galleon in in the middle of the rainforest, so why not? Well, yeah, <laughs> the shock of surprise and that galleon in the rainforest. I think that was the thing that made me fall head over heels in love with Marquez and me then too. magical realism as a result. And it still totally gets me. And um. And it's really hard to replicate because he's <laughs> because he can do anything with that matter of factness. Um, and yet, oddly, he he manages to not write magical realism galleons in you know in the wrong places. It somehow has a meaning, or it feels as though it has a mm. meaning in the way that objects in your dreams have meanings, and you're not quite sure what they are. Whereas it's very easy to slip into a random jumble of stuff that shouldn't be there if you're trying to write magical realism. And I think that's why some people roll, roll their eyes at it because you just think, well, why is why? Why does that have to be there? Why do we have to see this thing? It feels like there is a reason with Marquez. And if, even yeah. if you're not going to find out what it is, you believe him and you trust him somehow. Yeah. Oh, so and it's, it's the, I, think, I think with that as well, it was the, when you try and explain it to someone who hasn't read the book... It, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you're just talking gibberish, just, and it's, it's it's almost like you you have to catch it out of the corner of your eye to kind of believe it, and then when you turn around, it's not there, and and it and it's um it very it feels ephemeral, and you know all all of that good stuff that that works so well, and and you can't you can't quite get why you loved it so much. And yeah, it was very much in, in the moment. I think that's probably yeah. sounds like the experience you had reading that for the first totally. time. Totally. Well. And just such an image as well. It's so beautiful and so strange and magical. And yet why, why does it linger? It's quite amazing. A couple of years ago when I, well, a few years ago now, when I was drafting stories, multiple stories set in and around Sydenham Woods that we're going to go into my next book but lots of them didn't make it because they didn't fit in in the end and I I wrote and redrafted and tried again so many different versions a story in which a ghost ship sailed through the wood because the trees in that wood had been used to make ships in London and I thought okay I've got an excuse I've got a reason for it to be there I could not do it (laughs) (laughs) so I I think that was a, a failed attempt but it it was revealing to me that yeah that image that I'd loved so much of Marquez's was not going to be reproducible by me or even sort of I couldn't even do a homage to him it was just (laughs) (laughs) useless so it's hard really hard yeah (laughs) um if if any listeners are wondering what what the hell we're talking about um 100 years of solitude is the uh, (laughs) is where that happens and I hope we haven't spoiled it for you um when you do come across it so you're, you're using, as we said, you're using stories that are 
ages old as inspiration and as the sources of your storytelling. Do you subscribe to the theory that there are no new stories, just versions of the same few that have been with us for generations? This idea always crops up that there've just been a few stories around forever and we just we just tell different versions of them. And and I guess I'm happy for people to claim that that's true, but I also prefer the idea that it's the variations on those stories that are the interesting part, not the sameness of them, <laughs> like the, the fact of there being several central plot dynamics or character dynamics that we continuously return to or that are compelling for us as human beings for some reason is fine. But in the world of folk tales and folklore, tons of work has been done to sort of systematize the tale types. Uh, here are all the swan maiden tales and here are all the seal maiden tales or whatever. And um, they've kind of been categorised and identified. Vladimir Prop and Max Luti are the two people who boasted a lot on this. And it's interesting and useful, but it isn't as interesting as, say, what's different about the Icelandic version of this maternal killer story and the Southern English version of it, you know, which is where you find out about places and about writers and about periods when these versions might have been told or written down. And so I think that the fact that there are as many versions as there are people who care to retell them is much more interesting. And it doesn't matter, for example, how well I know the Bluebeard story and boy, do I know it well by now because I've been teaching it for years. I still am fascinated with every every variation on that theme that I'm given by a student and I, I still genuinely enjoy them and are excited by other people's imaginations and the messages that they want to put into their stories. So perhaps it's true that there are only a few, <laughs> but I don't think it makes it means that we're gonna run out of interest in in reading retellings of them. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. Does in the same way that you know there there are only so many what things that you can do with a set of chords in a song, but there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of songs made with those with those with those components. And do yeah, you, you actually need three, don't you? And you're off. Chords <laughs> and the truth. They uh, someone once said, didn't they? <laughs> that's, that's how I do my songwriting. Isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes only two <laughs> and lies. <laughs> When Hearn walked, he swayed a little, groggy. But it was the weight he carried, those horns. Like a walking tree, he seemed, swaying in a light wind, nearly twice the height of our king now. A spiked man, a man-stag. You'll get used to it, Dickie said. He put an arm about Hearn's shoulders, who had my cloak still bound about his middle, who had the king's eye his love, who glanced back at us and smiled, or seemed to. There was little light to see as the king led us, careful of low branches, out of the wood. It is as if I dream, Hearn said. He raised a hand to touch, to touch his new crown. But Dicky, kind king, took that hand in his own, and on his own weary feet, all the way without a mount, he led Hearn home. Get used to it. We did, and we did not. But a king is sacred, so we kept our smirks to ourselves. We spoke to Hearn, when it was called for, as if he was just as before. And in a way, he was. 
still the king's favourite hunter, the best hunter in Dickie's eyes, but more precious now and more dangerous. He knocked lit candles from their sconces, ripped a gauzy hanging from its pole. The ladies ogled. One, a flimsy maiden, swooned upon a stone floor. I saw the bruise, blue, nasty. But Hearn laughed. Oh, he was in fine spirits those first few days. The ladies giggled, became flighty, noisy. We heard the patter of their hurrying feet, whispers, squeals. We heard worse. The moans of that flimsy maiden when Hearn took her to his room. The scrape of antler on stone above his bed. The marks are still there. Did the king hear? Most likely. Most likely he was pleased. He hid his own queen in the royal bed for hours on end, and ravenous feasted on venison, every day venison, and jug upon jug of wine. It was, those first few days, a very festival. Hearn hailed, Hearn toasted, ladies wide-eyed, or narrow-eyed at the flimsy maiden bouncing in Hearn's lap. But meat stays good to eat only a few days. The rest of the stag was salted and packed for the winter, and the king declared himself hungry again. Not for meat, or his queen, but for the hunt. So, um, Zoe, when when you're constructing a story or, or, or composing it or writing it or whatever you, you want to say, do you write um, sequentially or do you dip in and out along the course of the plot as the mood and inspiration takes you? When I'm writing a short story, I much prefer to progress chronologically <laughs> from start to finish. I think it's partly to do with being a, a writer by hand into a notebook. I can't start chopping things around and, and changing it hugely in, in terms of structure until I've typed it up, which I don't normally let myself do until I've written to the end so that I'm not tempted to start <laughs> mucking about. Um, so I, I like to do it that way, but that, that doesn't always work. And obviously things change massively once you have got something on a page and you can start moving the sections around completely or uh, you don't have to stick to the way that you wrote it I also tend to think if I get to a bit in a story that I'm loath to write and I don't fancy it I kind of try and force myself through it because I think otherwise it's going to be even more painful to come back to and I, don't, I don't know whether that's a good idea or not <laughs> but often that I'm not a great planner I have to say if I over plan a story I kind of get to know it too well and then I'm bored and I'm like, well, why do I need to write it? I can't, there's nothing for me to find out here. So if I set off with a vague idea of what might happen or where I am or what something I want to do with it, I, I really need surprises on every page I write to keep me going. <laughs> you know, that's, that's part of the pleasure. Um, and if I'm just trying to neatly lay out in prose um, a plot that I've already decided on, I, I I don't get very excited about it, but that's really just me. And I, I know two writers work in quite the same way. And so I've, I'm really wary of 
advising people to copy the methods of other writers they know because it's unlikely that that will be the one that works for you indeed do you always know where a story is going uh, when when you begin it no <laughs> which means it's a long-winded way of working if you don't know um because you're going to find out and it might not it might not go in a good direction but you know that's that's what editing is for and being open to it landing somewhere else if you've ended it if you've ended up in the wrong place is is perfectly all right it's very nice to know where it's going but I kind of I also enjoy not always not always knowing I know people who've who've had this when writing whole novels and I'm not sure I'd indulge myself at novel lengths with not knowing exactly where it's going that would be too terrifying and for both the books that I've completed writing now I kind of I only understood the structure of the final book when I was half way through maybe writing the material which is a very strange way of working which I also wouldn't recommend (laughs) so I've tried to plan a a little bit more for book three I think getting three quarters of a way through a novel and still not knowing how it will end is is a psychological torture I'm not sure I could bear you you wouldn't know that you were three quarters of the way through it (laughs) it could be only halfway through this is true Um, (laughs) another problem unless you've got a really good editor or a will of steel, you know. Yeah. So you've alluded to um, some parts of the answer to this next question, uh, but I suspect there's some more. So what do you see as the main stages and processes of devising a good story? Well, if I'm going to plan a story or devise a story, I think the fundamental thing is that there has to be a spark there has to be something, whether it is a snippet of folklore or anything at all, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is, but given that's something that often gets me going. But any spark, I think, is something that you either just love an idea or an image or a line or there's something that you have slightly fallen in love with and um, that needs to be there or something that is mysterious to you so you you feel compelled to write about the thing but you don't know why yet so that's a good way <laughs> that's a good way in um, or just something that you want to explore whether that's a landscape or an idea or a person and keeping the spark alive or trying to write before it dies is is really important too and I, I'm sure lots of other writers will recognize this feeling of having had that spark and written some notes and got really excited and not had time or the will to put pen to paper. And, and a few weeks later, you're looking at your notes, scratching your head and thinking, what, why, why was I, <laughs> you know? Um, so trying to capture it, that spark while it's there and then devising the story. I mean, it's a really tricky thing to talk about because some stories are so plotty and some stories are really an exploration of a place or a character in which we might mm. see a tiny little shift <laughs> happen inside someone's head. And obviously, knowing what sort of story you might be writing is helpful. But I do think if if people can bear not to pin down what they're doing for a little while and just let some stuff come out and allow yourself that pleasure of writing without necessarily knowing what it is, I'm sure that's not considered a pleasure by lots of people. But um, for me... The, the writing it down and seeing what comes out is the really pleasurable bit and the agony is the editing. And it's so the other way around for a lot of people that sort of having to draft something feels like hell, in which case I guess 
knowing what's where you're going to be roughly halfway through your story have you got a really good midpoint shift or can you already tell that there's a soggy middle so what are you going to do about it um but I think you can really apply your story logic later which sounds sounds really backwards I once heard someone ask a question at a literary event of um, writers on the Women's Prize shortlist, and they put their hand up and said, do you write with grammar or do you add the grammar later? And I'm, I'm always quoting this because I find it so funny. <laughs> but in the, in the instance of kind of your story logic, the if-then, the if-then if of, of what happens in the story and the, the fact of everything having to have consequences – is something that you really can iron out when you come back to it for the second draft because you will find all the flubby bits or once you've identified a theme even in a story, then when you're looking at it again, you can see all the material that doesn't serve the theme and take it out. But you might not get to the point of identifying your theme without writing in a quite a vague or messy way in the first place. Mm. So that's a really unhelpful pricey of devising a short story. <laughs> One thing you did mention um, there that I did want to pick up on again was that 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 spark, that something that makes you want to write, and and is the is the kind of the hook that br- brings you into that story, and and that you hope that will be for 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 readers as well. How do you maintain that spark through the editing process so that you don't kind of you know, inadvertently, I suppose, edit out the bit that you found interesting enough to start writing in the first place. Yeah, going from being really excited by an idea to then having to edit the mess that you've made and writing about it, in my case, anyway. I guess it, getting that right, editing towards a better version of the original idea that you had. If when you look back at what you've written, even if, if you've just splurged out the clay that you're now going to mould, Hopefully, by that stage, you're starting to get some insight into why it was that this thing provided a spark for you in the first place. <laughs> so why why did it intrigue you? What is the mystery that needed asking? What's the question that you found yourself trying to answer as you wrote the story is one way of putting it. And I think that's fine to not know what the question was, end up with an answer and then backtrack and think, oh, that's what this was all about and I, yes, I find it difficult to necessarily know what that theme or that meaning is until later. But I think as long as you can find that, you can think to yourself, this is what this story is doing. Or if it's not, this is what I want this story to do now that you've got some more material that can guide your editing. And I, I think the tricky thing is some of the most helpful editorial input is from other people actual publishing editors or just other writers in your writing group or whatever and their input isn't necessarily going to serve the spark that you might not yet be able to articulate so I think having faith in your instincts to some extent about what kind of edits you accept and if if your heart is screaming no I can't cut out the dream about the fish it's vital then (laughs) so well if it's vital why is it vital what's in there that really matters to you and I was talking to someone who was having this problem. There was something vital in her story that um, a reader didn't agree was vital. And just talking about it can help find your way to what is it that really matters about this. So I think that's helpful. And being being resistant to changing something 
away from what you thought it was going to be. If it still isn't working for, for other readers, then maybe you haven't figured it out yet. But this is why the horrible truth of multiple, multiple drafts is, is part of the process that you might not really find the answer until you're several drafts in. And that's fine. People mm. tell stories about kind of sitting on drafts of stories for decades even before they understand what it is that the story needs to do and it's it's a happy ending but what agony but something something important has clearly remained for them if it mattered still 20 years later so I think having faith in that and remembering the version of yourself that you were when you got excited about that thing I think it's why it's so hard to write a novel over a single story novel over a long period of time because you're a completely different person when you're finishing it and when you started it yeah. and you might not care about that spark anymore yeah but it but it but I know what you mean it's it's like it's like the building a cathedral or you know <laughs> trying to envisage the sculpture in the block of marble isn't it, 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 it it's it's a, it's a hell of a process and it's not going to reveal itself over an afternoon is it so. No, and hopefully it doesn't, because the longer it takes, the more interesting it might be. Um, mm. And I, I love that that process of something very, very slowly emerging. I really do believe that time is a vital ingredient in writing something with multiple layers of meaning and nuance and something that readers will hopefully want to reread and return to because it will it will sort of have different inflections at different points in time and and for different readers as well that that all sounds terribly pompous doesn't it but I think if you can afford to let yourself take time and have things sort of simmering away it's going to get more interesting as, as you go on and this is this is my excuse anyway for, <laughs> for not writing terribly fast <laughs> well I think the, the the main thing um, is is when you do bring something out, it's it is absolutely magical. And um, folk was such a brilliant read, and and um, I can thoroughly recommend it to our to our listeners. The wind drums its song at the door all night long, a beat for the devil to dance to, leaving the prince of hooves around the house. Winfred tugs her stitches tight to keep him out. I watch my needle dive through the weft, the stab and the give, and dream up patterns I'd never stitch. Secret rhythms. Crosses for kisses. Every girl stitches those. I've stitched my name on a ribbon and thrown it into the gorse, same as the rest. But I have a tingle under my skin for more than kisses, and there's no pattern for that. Winfred. My dear old Granny Wynne is sewing for my wedding trunk. She plants luck into bedsheets with witching threads. She won't be drawn on the slightest thing. Not the wind, not the rush of the rain on the roof. Not what's in her heart, not what's in mine. We sit here, blessed to be dry, to be warm down one side where the fire glints in my needle, while the world outside is battered to bits. Underneath the devil's palm beat, warping our wetened door, comes another tap, tap, tap. It is faster. It has blood behind it. I lift the stitching from my lap and go to listen. Tap, tap, tap. It is not an evil, nor an animal noise. 
I catch the door as it swings in at me, and there, in the welter of water and wind, is a man such as I have never seen. Such hair, such skin, taut across the bones of his face, taut across his limbs. He wears only a rag wrapped around him at the hips. I think of the needle through the weft, the stab and the give. Shelter, please. He says, that is all. And when I show him to the seat beside mine on the settle, his head falls, just like that, into my lap. A head is for stroking. Hair as soft as waterweed, strokes as soft as I can muster. What else is there to do? All that long, lean body of him curled hard against the settled cloth. His warmth on my thighs. What would I do but stroke? The tingle grows in my fingers. When wind comes with a cup for the stranger, the saucer rattles in her clawed old hands. But he doesn't stir. She bends to catch the growl of his breath and frowns. My hands are deep in his hair. Dig in, she whispers. My dragging fingers bring up from the depth of his hair and head and skin smell tiny shells. They are under my nails like sand, but each with an impossible whirl inside. Too tiny and too deep. I rake and harvest hundreds of them, pinky white or crusted green. Some trailing a ghost of hair behind them. I hold a palmful out to win, but she is shaking. Her eyes wet with fear. Waterball, she says. I should feel the cold of fear now. For this is the tale wind tells the most, at the barred house and here on the settle. It is the one she wields to keep me home on nights like this when the dusk falls fast. Safe from the river that curls like an eel around the house. Safe from the sea that churns below. The water ball, her story goes leaps inland with the sea surf on wild nights and swims up the river, sensing souls. Then he shakes off his bull hide and hunts himself a maiden. The only way she can save herself is to cross water. I must run for the river, Wynne urges, and hold my skirts tight around me so he cannot grab them if he follows. Gingerly, she pushes a wad of wool between his head and my thighs, and I edge out from beneath his warm weight. Wynne has a look in her eye that says, Defy and be doomed. And it is only this that makes me shift, for how it hurts me of a sudden to leave his warmth. I long to stroke the dark fuzz that covers his arms and shoulders. The smell of his hair is between my fingers, how a seal pup might smell. I want to rub my face against it and breathe deep, 
But Wynne is pushing me with uncommon strength and she hurls me through the slapping door into the summer storm. When I turn at the gap in the wall to rub the rain from my eyes, I see Wynne on the threshold and the man's strange, wide face right there above her own wizened one. Run, girl, she bellows, and I know he is coming. Do you have any advice for writers looking to use elements like folklore and mythology as their inspiration? I think for writers who would like to use folklore, mythology or folk tales as a source of inspiration for new stories, I'd, I'd say don't be afraid of taking folklore or equivalent beliefs seriously or fantastical stories from the past. The question I often ask myself or realise this is what I've been asking later and I encourage other people to think about as well on my courses is when you're looking at a magical belief or a ritual or a custom or something is to ask yourself really, really, what if this were real? What were the consequences of that be? Or just as good a question, what if somebody really believed this? What if they really thought there were consequences and how would that alter their behaviour or their attitudes? equivalent kind of question is what if someone doubts this is real in a place where it is real and as soon as you start doing that you realize how terribly dark a lot of fairy tales are (laughs) quite horrible really but letting your mind play with the reality of that thing even if you're then going to transpose that kind of set of cause and effect into a different more realistic setting is a good way in And another thing to think about is, you know, do do that thinking that might come later if you just write into something without knowing what you're doing. But if you're grabbed by a piece of folklore or or a tale, thinking about how how can you make this speak to you? What's the story you would like to read about this? Because that's the first person that you need to please (laughs) when you're writing something anyway. Um, What's going to what would work for you personally? What would be exciting? But also in terms of this sort of taking it seriously and how can you make it um, resonate, I also think it's really a good idea not to be too reverential, you know, be subversive, make Angela Carter's old wine bottles explode with new wine inside them, you know, be silly as well because it can seem a little bit po-faced or, yeah, reverent, I suppose to try to take this material and very carefully <laughs> represent it. You, you don't have to do that. And other retailers of folk tales and manglers of folklore have not been kind to the material. They've done what they've wanted with it. And, and it's absolutely there for you to do that. I think it's kind of one of the beauties of it that you can't really go too wrong. It's really about what finding what it is about it that excites you and, and exploring that bit. I've only written inspiration I've only been inspired by folklore in my writing, I suppose, because I'm interested in it and it makes me happy to explore it in a piece of fiction. And it's just nice if someone else also wants to read that. So absolutely right. The fantastical things you'd like to read about, I think. Can you tell us um, about the the, the forthcoming novel, um, Zoe, and how our listeners can pre-order? Yes, my next novel is Mischief Acts known in this house as Misty Facts, but 
don't type that into your Google search <laughs> engine. Uh, so it's available for pre-order already, even though it's not out until March 2022. And you can find it on the Bloomsbury Publishers website, or you can look at bookshop.org, which is a great place to pre-order books from. I've been told that pre-ordering books is good for authors because it helps with their first day sales when it actually comes out. So if you're feeling generous and nice, then please do pre-order it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. And, and as always, we will print um, links uh, within the show notes of this podcast. So finally, um, Zoe, what are you currently working on? So I spent lockdown going down lots of blind alleys and writing some terrible, terrible stuff, which I threw in the bin. But I also spent time researching around my nearly local area of Dungeness and Romney Marsh, uh, reading around it, uh, walking around it, uh, as well as lots of other odd research, which has finally sort of come together into something like a project. So I'm, I'm going to be spending the next however long it takes writing a sort of, it won't be about Dungeness itself, but a sort of magical realist version of, shall we say, and I can't really say anymore because it will be a completely different thing by the time it's finished, but I'm really excited to be using a, another real landscape to, to sort of inspire something that's maybe one step away from it and somewhere I can actually go to and again try and use local detail and incident but to tell a hopefully a, a bigger story than simply a local one. So this seems to be my new rut. I'm very happy to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Zoe Gilbert, thank you very much for your, uh, for your time today. Thank you. It's been delightful. Thanks to Zoe Gilbert for taking part in this podcast and to her publisher Bloomsbury for allowing us to recreate excerpts from Folk and Zoe's upcoming novel Mischief Acts. We'll post links so that you can find out more about Zoe, follow her on social media, order a copy of Folk or pre-order Mischief Acts which is due out in March 2022 in the show notes for this podcast. Tiffany Clare is a well-known voice to Alternative Stories listeners. As an actress, she has appeared in a number of our audio dramas, including most recently taking the lead role of Holly in our Cornish folklore-inspired drama The Silver Ball by Anna Chilton. Tiffany has also appeared in stage productions, advertisements and films, and is a frequent presenter of Alternative Stories and other podcasts. Hello, I'm Divney Clare. I'm a voiceover artist and actor based in South East London. I trained at E15 Acting School for three years and got a BA in acting. Uh, after graduating, I've worked on a few projects, some on stage, some on screen, but after a year or so, I actually discovered a love of voiceover and have been working in that industry ever since. So all acting represents a type of storytelling, but when you're playing a character in a story, you're only getting to tell one fraction of that story. How do you make sure that your portrayal of a character contributes to the story as a whole? So I think quite obviously, <laughs> and most importantly, you, you have to read the entire script. Um, I know it sounds uh, quite basic, but especially nowadays, you work from home a lot and you work independently. And I've had times where I have actually only had my 
my scenes. Um, but you learn so much from what other characters say about your character. Um, and you just get more of a flow and a feel of of the world that someone's written um, when you read the whole script and you get, you know, a good sense of the style, of the genre and how your character fits in that world rather than, you know, a generic breakdown of, you know, 25-year-old woman who works in XYZ. Um, you could go in, you know, bold with an idea that you've got in your head about that. But when you put that character in context with everyone else and... Um, you know, all the scenes and all the setting that you get, you get a more three-dimensional character. What if the trees ate them? Or the raven? Don't be silly, girl. Trees don't eat people, frightening as they are. <laughs> Go and tend to the fire. Trigvi, leave that bread and help me nail this in. Your arm is steadier. It's a charm to help ward off bad luck and evil. Pass me the hammer. Do you want it there or higher? There will do just fine. Oh, good. Now it can't get in. So, you've seen it. The raven. Have you, Trigvi? Yes. It's there. It's in the trees just beside the path. It is so dark today. This charm may help, but it might not ward away the raven completely. Even though I added the wings of that dead crow. We all added something to the charm. Ribbons, beads of glass and clay, but even so, I'm not sure it will be enough. Don't forget, we all prayed before they left. To Maley and to Othin. Yes, Maley and Othin. But did they listen? So, Tiff, you've, you've appeared in a number of our audio drama productions. What does audio drama demand from an actor that differs from physical or visual theatre? And how does your approach to storytelling or, or playing a character differ between these settings? It is really different. It's, it's a whole uh, like other art form in a way. Um, I, was, I was having to think about this and I remembered at college when we started doing our radio training, which we didn't do much of, to be fair. But at the time, we were studying Pinter, and we'd put a few duologues on stage, um, and they were wonderful, meaty scenes. And then our director took us into the radio suite and said, great, we're going to record them here. Thought, okay, fine. And I thought, this is you know probably my time to shine. <laughs> this is going to be great for me. <laughs> Um, we got up and we really milked it. We we did exactly, we used the characters so well. We earned the pauses. We were so tense. It was great. And when we played it back, it was utterly boring and it was so flat and it was so like mortifying to listen to because it was like we hadn't done the work at all when we had been working on this exact script for weeks and, you know, on stage it worked brilliantly. Um, and you realised you'd, you have to channel everything through your voice. You have no other tools as the actor. Obviously, there's wonderful producers who, who you know, get the sounds and they get beautiful music and create the scene like yourself. Um, but all I've got is, is, the, <laughs> is, is the voice. So you have to start looking at the script more and being a bit 
more sneaky with how you show things. You know, you can't show you're nervous with twiddling your hands. You've got to vocalise that. And you can't just look at a character. You've got to direct your voice as if you're talking to that person and and visualise them. You know, like you wouldn't talk to your mum the same as you would talk to your partner or your best friend. You've got to find ways to find those slight differences in your voice to be able to communicate and you've got to make it more dynamic it's got to be you tell the story with your voice with the highs and the lows with you know you've got to really earn those pauses as well because pauses on the radio are boring (laughs) they're just silent um so yeah when I Mm. when I approach it sometimes I try to look at a script like I'm talking on the phone because obviously we communicate very well on the phone without seeing each other. Um, So you've got to think, how do you get that same dynamic across and those highs and lows across with just using your voice? Mm. And are there any clues you look for from from writers and and the way that they've uh, given you directions or or just the way they've written the characters when you're you're doing voice work? Yeah, definitely. Um, They they always write in lovely, you can feel when it's kind of amping up and when you need to pick up the pace, like that's in pace and tone. You've got lovely tools to work with and, you know, they write these lovely communications with other characters and... um, you know, kisses and things like that, which you can vocalise and it's and it's fun. You can play with it. But I think that's the main thing. You have to play with it and you have to think outside the box as well and really put yourself in that scene and make it fun and make it interesting. And something you always do really well um, when, when you're doing one of our, our dramas is that you do really excellent takes so so we always ask for at least three takes but yours are always kind of you could use any of the three and so it then becomes a choice um you know which is the best one for the line that's gone before um or that fits best with the line afterwards so so I think I I imagine that what you're doing there is imagining three at least three different ways in which that line could convincingly be Oh, yeah. I mean, you're very kind and I'm very glad we're recording this so people don't see me blushing. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit this out. <laughs> um, yeah, no one needs to know that. Um, yeah, I, it is. You have to give a lot of variations, I say, especially nowadays. You so often, I haven't even met people I've done a whole play with or spoken to them mm. even on the phone. You know, you've got to preempt how different people might interpret these lines and what different, you know, how you can get your point across by stressing different words or putting a little smile under it or making it a bit more sinister. And yeah, if I, if, if you say, you could say hello so many different ways. (laughs) Mm. Um, But it's, it's hard. It's hard because obviously you get set in your, in your set in stone, but there's also a freedom to it, which is really nice, which you don't always have on stage because you need something a bit more Mm. solid and that works yes. um, where you've, you've got that sense of play with an audio drama that you can try loads of different things, have the fun, have the play. And then, as you say, when you put it all together, you see what works and what doesn't. In the end, it, it got a little more serious. <sighs> I didn't know. I never knew. 
Oh, Amber, sorry to break this to you. I, I'm so sorry. Oh, God. Oh, God. I suppose thinking back to times when you've appeared in, um, in, on stage, play, in stage plays, so the, the, the story's unfolding, and you're getting presumably reaction back from an audience. Mm-hmm. Does that help with the with the storytelling aspect of, of, oh, of your work as an actor? Massively. I mean, that's what's so different about you know radio. You get nothing back. You have to trust yourself, and you've got to trust your gut. Mm. You don't, I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> I sound like a narcissist, because there's nothing better than when an audience laughs at you. It, you you know you've done it. You've, you've got, you've achieved what you set out to achieve. In an audio drama, there's no, and, like, and very much like filming as well, filming, but then you've got people mm. on set with you. So you've got the runners giggling behind, you know, their packet of crisps or, <laughs> or things like that. <laughs> In an audio drama, it's more often than not just me and my mic and I have to make myself mm. laugh and I've got, I've got to get through the day doing that um but yeah there's no yeah. there's no guarantee it's worked and you don't know until it comes back to you or until you get feedback I, I know this the same is probably true true in film and tv that you do your bits and then you sort of go away and forget about it. And then you get to hear the finished production. You get to hear that story unfolding. It's, how, how is that as an experience? It's really bizarre because it's like you've had conversations you haven't had. You know, I can hear myself mm. having a very coherent conversation with someone that I've never met or never spoken to. And yet it works perfectly. So, you know, people are doing their jobs right. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, a re- it's amazing because you do forget and then you get that lovely warm glow when you hear it rather than mm. that constant kind of applause when you're on stage. You know every night that you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. The constant, constant obviously, showered with praise. <laughs> it, must, it, must, it must get so boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting being adored. <laughs> so in this edition of the podcast, Tiff, we can hear you uh, reading an excerpt from uh, Zoe Gilbert's novel Folk, and we we spoke to um, Zoe earlier in this edition. Can you give us an idea of how you approach reading an excerpt like that, um, and how you try to get the story across in the most engaging way possible? Mm. I I loved that piece very much. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Um, but so I start obviously reading it through as a whole and and trusting my gut a little bit there, seeing what images come to mind, um, what it makes me see, what it makes me feel. And then I kind of know what I want the audience to see and feel when I'm telling the story. And then I try and look, because I very much feel that stories don't just have one beginning, middle and end. They have lots of little, lots of little beginning, middles and ends. So you've got to do those to create the little waves and to create that. Otherwise, it's it's just a bit sluggish. You've got to create lots of little highs and lows to keep people engaged, especially with audio when you've got nothing else to follow. So that that kind of that creates that gives you an idea of pace because you can see what you're aiming towards, what you need to hit, and then yeah, I you really have to look at the words and because they'll paint the scene. They do all the work work for you. And then you've, as I say, it's, it's, for me, it's a feeling of the world. It's, oh, it's dark. It's, 
scary. You you get a real sense of the tone that the writer wants to get across. <laughs> You've got to vocalise it. <laughs> like that easy. But Wynne is pushing me with uncommon strength and she hurls me through the slapping door into the summer storm. When I turn at the gap in the wall to rub the rain from my eyes, I see Wynne on the threshold. And the man's strange, wide face right there above her own wizened one. Run, girl, she bellows. And I know he is coming. When you're a narrator, you're all knowing. So you have that luxury. And the characters... They, they enhance it and they make it more fun. Whereas when it's an audio drama, the characters are the everything. And mm. they, you know, they are characters. As much as you've read the whole play, they still don't know everything that's going on, whereas a narrator does. Mm. And so I think you have to, and there's not as much dialogue, so you have to make those characters within an a excerpt or a novel a little bit more interesting, a little bit louder, because they've got a short time to impact you. You haven't got mm. that. You haven't got the big lead up, or you know that hefty monologue in an audio book where you can really show the character. You not you get a few lines or so. Mm. So I tend to make yeah, them a bit and bigger. Certainly in, a, in an excerpt like um, <laughs> like that one, which was which was quite a short excerpt, yeah. wasn't it? But um, but um, no, I thought you I thought you read that one uh, beautifully. Actually, and really got the atmosphere of the piece, which is you know I guess Thank what you've you. been describing there. Really. Do you have any tips and advice for either for actors looking to read stories or perhaps for writers who might be wanting to record themselves reading their own work? Yeah, I, I do it. And don't be scared to be a bit silly and get things wrong. Everyone gets things wrong. And actually, there's nothing safer than doing it in the comfort of you know your own house, recording it on your phone. It's the only way you learn is by pushing yourself, trying things differently. And yeah, it's really low risk. The worst thing that can happen is you put it out and someone doesn't like it that much. And that's fine. If you like doing it, then someone else will like it. But yeah, don't restrict yourself and don't... I I got a little bit obsessed when I first left school of listening to so many audio dramas and trying to kind of emulate the actors in a way and thinking this is how I need to do these things but there's not there's not a set way of doing anything so you've got to find what you can bring to it especially when you wrote it you've got a voice that no one else has you know this world better than anyone else yeah just explore and have fun and trust yourself I have been counting moons for 35 years 420 lunar cycles That's why my hands are so old. My hands are mismatched. I don't know whose hands they were before they were mine. That data was erased long ago. It's not unusual for Egos to use hands harvested from different sources, so long as the nerves and sinews are intact. One human hand serves the same purpose as any other. Even nanometal cannot compete with the sensory receptor's fluid processing of primate hands. Not that primates other than humans are available for harvesting. I wonder about the lineage of these hands. 
the organic senses are both a curse and a blessing. Obviously, you mentioned that you you've worked on 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 stage and and screen. Uh, you've done a lot of audio drama, um, but you've also worked in uh, computer games. Yeah. Uh, as a as a voice actor. And I suppose from a from a storytelling perspective, probably the difference between a computer game and um, other forms of writing a scripted medium is that there are multiple possibilities of the way that the story unfolds according to the way that the player plays the game. So how does that work for you as a as a voice actor? <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. But it's a lot of work and it's very, you've got to look after your voice because you can do 10, 10 takes in a row of different yelps. And there's only so many ways you think you can yelp, but you've just got to keep going. And that's, you know, half a second that's going to make it in the game. Um, yeah, and I, I did one recently, which exactly as you said, you you keep coming back to the character and you can have about 10 different endings depending on what you do. So you've got to keep that continuity of your character, but the script is huge because there's so many different possibilities this, you know, the player can go on. And so you've got to have the stamina. You've got to know your... I think the common misconception with video games is it's just silly voices and quite two-dimensional You've got to know that character so well and it's got to be a real full character because it can be in any situation and you have to know how that character is going to react in any situation and how they could react five different times in the same re- <laughs> in the same situation. So the possibilities are, are, are really endless with video games. Um, I mean, normally they are a lot bigger and a lot, you know, more characterful, so it is fun, but that is more strenuous on the voice as well. Hello? Hello? There's someone there. Can you hear me? I think they're outside. They're coming. I'm the only one left. Please help me. Do the writers and the makers of the of the game talk to you about the different scenarios that the character could be placed in? Um, or, or do you have to kind of work that out for yourself? I mean, yeah, you get given the scenario, you get given the situation they're in, but often they'll just say, cool, five different takes, go. They won't say, do one happy, do one sad, do one like this. They'll just say, give us what you've got. So you've got to take a bit of creative licence and put your kind of self-conscious side on the shelf. You've got to go for it. Not be afraid to be silly. Not be afraid to get one wrong. Because actually the one that you think's the worst might be the winner. I think that's also, the, I mean, sometimes that's the case in audio <laughs> drama as well, where an actor will say, you know, I, I, I did this tape absolutely brilliantly and you didn't use it. Yeah. Um, and and that's because I didn't feel that that was the one that went best with the line before. It wasn't the best reaction, the most natural reaction yeah, and, and to the line before. And I guess the same is true in video Oh, absolutely. Games. And, and normally it's the one that you stumble on and you think you got wrong that works best because it was most natural and you weren't in your head overthinking it. And it, it yeah. is what makes characters human as well, those little mistakes. So is that something you're hoping to do more of the uh, video games? Absolutely. I love video games. They're so much fun. 
Have you have you played any of the games that you voice? Not yet, you know. There's one that I'm dying to that's coming out soon, so I shan't say the name, but it's a VR one, which I think will be very fun to hear mm. my voice ringing and be in the world as well. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah. that will be really fun. But my my partner wants to get his hands on one of them and <laughs> give me a good beating up, I think. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, we, we look look forward to hearing more about, about that. Um, and finally, um, how can our listeners find out more about you and uh, if they'd like to book you as a as a reader, actress or video game star? <laughs> well, I, I've got my website, uh, which is voicebytiffany.com. Um, all my acting stuff goes through my agency, the Soundcheck Agency. But voiceover work, all my contact details are on my website. Brilliant. We'll, we'll post a link to that uh, website in the show notes for this podcast. Um, do it up so a bit. Tiffany Clare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, need to get it yeah. nice and spruce. Dust it off, <laughs> update it a bit. Brilliant. Well, Tiffany Clare, thank you so much for uh, being part of this uh, podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Zoe Gilbert and Tiffany Clare for taking part in this podcast. We'll print links so you can find out more about them in the show notes. In the next part of this short series about storytelling, we'll talk to memoirist and novelist Lily Dunn about the art of telling stories in non-fiction. We'll have extracts from Lily's forthcoming memoir, Sins of My Father, and we'll hear about the world of professional storytelling. Storytelling Part 1 with Zoe Gilbert and Tiffany Clare has been an Alternative Stories 2021 production for the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. The presenter and interviewer has been me, Chris Gregory. Our readers have been Tiffany Clare and Sally Walker-Taylor. The Alternative Stories and Fake Realities Podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction.